Matthew chapter 27, 27 through 50 is where we're going this morning as we have been moving through the passion of Jesus Christ, the final week of his life. And we come this morning to the crucifixion. <clears throat> I'm going to read um, out loud, and feel free to follow along in your own Bible, or if you don't have a Bible, the verses will be up on the screen for you. Hear God's word. Matthew 27, verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. And as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there, and over his head they put the charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right, one on the left, and those who passed by derided him wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. If he desires him, for he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which is, that is, that my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink and... But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirits. The word of the Lord. Praise be to God. What we've been looking at in this series of the Passion of the Christ is we, the Passion means, um, his, essentially speaks of his, the passivity of Jesus and the, the the suffering that was inflicted upon him. And in receiving that suffering, what we have seen in this is in each of the various components moving towards his death, and ultimately, as we're going to see next week, his resurrection, is is he is bearing um, various aspects of the human experience of sin and the consequence and outworkings of sin. In fact, what we see is he is going to swallow sin. He is the sin eater, and he will swallow it hook, line, and sinker. What we saw first is is Jesus endures betrayal from one who is closest to him. And yet in the midst of that betrayal, he will love those who are unfaithful to him even to the very end. 
In the garden of Gethsemane, we saw the emotional agony of the cross and the experience of taking the wrath of God on our behalf and the separation that came with that, separation from God the Father. And yet in the midst of that, living and doing perfectly, of following the Father's commands obediently in a way that we could never do. And then last week we saw at the trial, we see the king of the world, the one who is the judge and ruler of all things, who is judged by mere men. And indeed, he is condemned as a substitute for you and me. We are the guilty ones, and he is the innocent one, and yet the roles have been reversed. He has taken on our condemnation so that we might be declared free. And now this morning we come to the cross. We stare straight at the cross this morning, and it's kind of like staring at the sun. If you stare too long, there's too much there, and it can become dangerous. But what I would like us to consider this insight, this thing about the, the cross this morning, because we've already seen the fact that he was condemned in your place. We've already seen the, the shame and, or the, excuse me, the separation from the Father, that he received wrath and separation from God, this experience of how we've already seen that in the passion of Christ in the previous weeks before. And so what is unique as we get to, to the, this, this aspect of the passion of the Christ known as the cross, the crucifixion? Now, what we tend to focus on when we get to the cross, historically, what I think most of us tend to think is, is that we ought to feel pity for Jesus. And we think in particularly about the physical aspects of this crucifixion experience, that he had nails driven into his hands. And we go to great lengths to describe the pain of having a crown of thorns pressed into his head and being beaten. And so there's much emphasis in the history of the church around the physical suffering of the cross. But when you actually read the accounts, the act of being nailed to the cross, the act of physical suffering gets almost no attention. It is stated matter-of-factly. I mean, things are moving along here rather rapidly. He gets beaten, he's carrying his own cross, and somebody else has to carry his cross. And then almost as a means of forgetting it and remembering he has to remind us of what actually happened, Matthew will say, in the past perfect tense, and then they had crucified him. But what was, what was emphasized in this text? Here to look at your own Bible, what were the words and the scenes trying to give to us? What is the emphasis given to us in Matthew, Mark, and Luke? That are, these are called the synoptic gospels. They're very similar in their account of what happens here. What is emphasized in the cross and the actual crucifixion experience is this. It is the shame and disgrace of the cross. Not necessarily the physical pain, but the shame and disgrace of the cross. That is what is emphasized. And so this morning, I'm going to ask you to do something that is rather difficult. One, to look straight at the cross. And that is difficult in and of itself. But second, I also want you to look not just directly at the cross, but directly at your shame. We tend to think of it, the cross as dealing with our guilt, but it's dealt with something more than simply our guilt. It goes a step further, and it deals with your shame and mine. Here's the first thing I want us to look at. I want to show this from the text. I want to look at the cross of shame this morning, just kind of bringing out the emphasis of this text and how it shows us the disgrace that Jesus faced. You see the reaction to the cross over the centuries. When people will first read about the crucifixion experience, they're repulsed by it. It is grotesque. It is obscene, it is unsightly, it is gross. And such a reaction in and of itself is in a way correct because the cross is indeed obscene. 
It is indeed something that is shameful. It is not something you want to look at and keep your eyes on. It was, in fact, it was actually designed to be shameful. The Roman, as, as a, as giving it as a means of execution, designed the whole cross and crucifixion experience as to be the most shameful means of execution out there. If you want to just get the job done, there are much quicker ways to kill somebody, to execute someone than a cross. But what I want you to see here is everything about this experience is shameful and disgraceful. What do you see when he's with the soldiers after he has been condemned by the crowd and by Pilate? What is the first thing they do is they strip him of his clothes. They strip him of all sense of dignity. And in the midst of him standing there naked and beaten in front of them, they then begin to do what? They mock him. They jeer him. They shame him. And it actually reaches its high point when they make him naked in front of them. While on the cross, what, we want you, what, I, what I want you to see is not only will they go to the cross, they put his clothes back on him, but then they will strip him again. People were stripped naked, and they were put on a cross utterly naked for all people to see. They were exposed to the heat and to the gawking eyes of all who would see them. Jesus was treated as one who was shameful, who deserved to be disgraced. He was treated as one who should be rejected who should be mocked for not simply what he has done, but for who he is. And the goal of the crucifixion experience in the Roman execution hierarchy was to say this person, this person who is dying on a cross is not guilty, just simply guilty of some crime for which he must be punished. No, they're saying that he is guilty of such crime, but because he is guilty of this crime, he should be deemed as worthless, as nothing, as an object of derision and scorn and mocking and the worst kind of exposure. And that is exactly what Jesus gets, isn't it? Not only is he mocked by the Roman soldiers, he's mocked by everybody else who seems to come across him. In verses 18 through 19, we see that they pay fake homage to Jesus, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they send him outside the city. The sense of like the, that idea of being sent outside the city is that you are not worthy to be here like lepers that were sent outside. You cannot be near us. They were executed outside the city. And then as another means of shaming him, that he is too weak because of the beatings and the blood loss, that they then get Simon of Cyrene to carry his cross for him. It's another means of displaying that Jesus just simply does not measure up in the eyes of the world. It is a means of mocking him. For men in particular, that experience of saying, I am simply too weak. I cannot stand up. Jesus is here to made to be utterly weak and pitiful and before the public view. And then once he is crucified, what happens? Those who walk past the place of Jesus' execution, they made fun of him. They jeered him. They insulted him. And even the other men who are there being crucified with him, view him as a much greater object of scorn. They, Jesus is below them as well. The chief priests mock him, something that is unbecoming even of that day. This is them coming out of their hypocritical shell and suddenly revealing themselves to the world that they mock him. Oh, can you save yourself? Oh, you say you're connected to God. Well, if God really loves you, he'll get you down out of this. They consider him unworthy and an object of scorn. And then the worst rejection is the words that Jesus says at the end. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But even before the eyes of God, that he is an object of scorn and rejection, something to be pushed away, something to turn God the Father, turning his face away, that I will not look at the Son in this. I will abandon him completely. Rejection. The suffering of Jesus was certainly physical, but far more than the physical suffering of the cross was the shame of the cross. The shame of the cross. 
You know, Romans, they would only execute non-Romans. It was considered to be so shameful to be crucified, put it together on a cross. They won one person, Pliny the Younger said this, a historian said the very word cross, he says to Roman citizens, should be removed from the lips of a Roman person. It should be removed from their thoughts and their eyes and their ears. They shouldn't even consider it. It is too disdainful to even think about it. When they crucified victims, they did so to humiliate them. This is the cross of shame. Jesus, you are worthless. Jesus, you are weak. Jesus, you are an object of scorn. Jesus, you deserve nothing but death. Jesus, you are the lowest life form to walk on this earth. The cross of shame. Now, what I just stated in those voices that are being communicated to Jesus and about him in the crucifixion experiences, about being worthless, about not measuring up, about, not be, about being weak, for some of you, those voices sound eerily similar. They strike very close to home. They are familiar words. And this is the second thing I want us to look at. If we're going to understand the full weight of this and how it bears upon us the cross of shame, that it's not simply just something shameful out there, but it actually has something to do with us because what we live in in this world as people who are fallen and broken is we live with voices of shame. Shame shows itself in our lives, and it shows itself in many situations within our life. Let me just give you some examples, changing names to protect the innocent. Christy's voice is hoarse from screaming at her toddlers. She glances at the windows, thankful they're closed, and the neighbors can't hear the angry tirade that would discredit her as the kind and good Christian they think she is. She feels furious most of all with herself for losing it and losing it once again. And she does not know if she can find her way back to grace this time. Surely there are limits to God's forgiveness of an angry mother who speaks abusively to her children. Sam, Sam has red-rimmed eyes that betray the fact that he spent many hours last night in a bar. He could not bear to hear his wife Kelly's relentless criticism, and so he found a place of refuge, the only place he felt safe. He feels like he can never be weak in front of her. His only option is to leave her presence, to find some place to hide and regroup until he can be the strong man she expects him to be for her. Jake. Jake is alone. He assumed by the age 30 he would be well on his way to the dream of a successful career, marriage, and starting a family. Instead, Jake works an unmotivating job, cannot seem to garner enough courage to talk to the woman he admires from afar, much less to ask them on the date. The worst day for him in the week? Sundays. Because he sits in a pew by himself, surrounded by those who seem to have what he's missing. But what is he missing? Why can't he ever shake the feeling of... I'm not quite good enough. These are the voices and the scenes of shame. And shame speaks. Shame speaks to us. It's the voice and the message of shame says this. In these words, there is something wrong with you. You are worthless. You deserve rejection. And so you should hide. There is something wrong with you. You are worthless. You deserve rejection. And so you should hide. Where does shame come from? 
Shame can come from any number of places in our lives. Shame comes from something, perhaps from many of you, that has happened to you. It is something shameful that has been done to you, that has actually stained you by the sins and guilt of someone else. Perhaps it was a one-time traumatic event that has shaped your life. The father who walked out on you and yet you never saw again. Or perhaps the spouse who left you or cheated on you. The shame is the feeling that years after the spouse or the parent has abandoned you, has left you feeling as if there is something wrong with you that would have led them to leave. For some, it's a deeply traumatic experience such as molestation where you experience on one dark, awful night. Shame is the person who feels dirty after intimacy with their spouse because of the some, some long ago day there was abuse that they endured and that abuse has left them feeling unclean and contaminated. Shame comes because of something that happened to you over a very long period of time. It may have not been one simple traumatic event, but it was the drip, drip of living in a parent's household or living with a friend or a teacher who scorned you with their words over and over and over again. Shame is found in those that endure verbal abuse because they have come to believe the abuser's words. Shame says this, Dr. Ed Welch, a Christian counselor, says, you are not acceptable. You are a mistake. At first, you might hear it from others, such as parents or classmates, but later you make it your own. It is not that you are unacceptable, but the voice begins to be your own. I am not acceptable. I am a mistake. Shame can come simply because of your inability to measure up. Not necessarily because of the sin of somebody else or even the sin of yours, but simply because you're a fallen and broken human being living with weaknesses in this world. The husband who gets fired and struggles to provide for his family, he doesn't experience shame because of some sin. He experiences the shame because of the limitations that he has as a human being. The young girl who works hard at school to get good grades but is terrified during testing and never scores well and never seems to measure up and can't get into the college she desires, she experiences shame because in some way, shape, or form, she has fallen short. It's something lacking in her or in him. And lastly, shame comes because of something you do or did. We have shame because of our guilt because for many of us, actually, let's say all of us, we have shame because of our guilt because we have done shameful things. It's an illustration some of you may be familiar from the little book called The Little Prince. And in the book, there's a drunk, a tippler, he's called, and a little prince is having a conversation with him, and the conversation goes like this. The little prince asks, so why are you drinking? And the tippler replies, so that I might forget. Forget what, inquired the little prince, who was already feeling sorry for him. Forget that I am ashamed, the tippler confessed, hanging his head. Ashamed of what, insisted the little prince who wanted to help him. Ashamed of drinking. Shame and guilt create a terrible cycle in which we live in. They are wrapped up with one another and they are connected to one another. But we also, in order to highlight the, the, the differences and to highlight what shame is, we must highlight the differences so as not to conflate them. They are different things. What is the difference between shame and guilt? Guilt is the awareness of failure against some objective standard. So if I I know I should treat people with kindness, but I lose my temper, then I feel guilty because there is true guilt there. I have done something wrong. Guilt is easier, though, to get a handle on because we can name it in light of some standard that is out there. Shame, though, is a sense of failure in the eyes of someone else. 
a sense of failure in front of others who are looking at me. You can feel ashamed even not just around the people around you, but simply before yourself, ashamed in your own eyes. Maybe it's best to to describe the differences between guilt and shame in this way and by the grammar, the way they speak. Guilt uses the language of action. I failed. I disobeyed. I acted cowardly. I acted foolishly. I didn't do well. Shame uses the language of being. I am a failure. I am a sinner. I am a coward. I am a failure. Guilt and shame are connected in this, that our guilty actions or the guilty actions of someone against us speaks to us a voice of shame. I failed my kids. That's guilt. I'm a failure as a parent. That's shame. I was abused sexually. So I am worthless physically. It is I am statements. It is being statements. Shame lingers even after we've recognized that the guilt of our sin has been washed away. That there's something about our sins or the sins of others against us that stain us in a way that feels permanent. For example, shame is what I feel like when I'm, when I'm wearing, when I yell at my kids again. And I go back and I ask them to forgive me and I receive forgiveness. But the shame is the lingering sense that I have failed them beyond the point of rescue. That I have failed because I am a failure. I'm a failure. In other words, the guilt of sin stains us and forms our identity. And the story of shame is found throughout the Bible. In fact, the words that we would use to describe shame are used ten times more in the Bible than words to describe guilt. In the scripture, we say, here's how the words of shame are communicated. They're found in the words of nakedness, dishonor, disgrace, derision, defilement, uncleanliness. And the concept of shame dominates the pages of scripture from the earliest parts of the story. Let me describe it to you this way and how Adam and Eve viewed themselves before the fall. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, it says this. And the man and his wife were both naked... And they were not ashamed. We were designed to walk with one another, to feel confident as to who we are at the very core of our being, and we're supposed to walk with God in complete harmony and intimacy and oneness with Him, feeling approval about who we are. And yet in Genesis chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, after they have sinned against God, it says this about the human experience Then the eyes of Adam and Eve were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And man and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. You see what's happened. In the fall, we have been, we have been introduced to shame. You can't miss, this, miss the message of shame's debut in Genesis chapter 3. Shame says, I am unpresentable. There's something about me at the core of my being that should not be seen, that is ugly, that is wanting, and I am unpresentable before God and other people. Adam and Eve hid from each other, and they hid from God's. Shame is experienced horizontally with one another, and it's also experienced vertically before God's. And ever since Adam and Eve, we have hid the uncleanliness of who we are, not simply of what we've done. Our shame, we've tried to cover up with the fig leaves of this world. The fig leaves are our means to get rid of our shame. And we'll talk about what those are in just a minute. To cover over, to keep our shame from being discovered. 
But I also want you to understand this about shame. It is not all bad. Shame, we must understand that shame is not something to be ignored. In some ways, we actually must listen to it and recognize it. Shame functions like pain functions in our nervous system. It is telling us that there is something wrong with us. And most often, it actually speaks the truth because there is something wrong with us. When we feel shame, it is telling us that part of who we are or a part of our experience and a part of our world needs to be cleansed and made new and made right. If we lose shame without getting rid of the problems that cause shame, they know what that becomes, what that makes us? Sociopaths. Sociopaths feel no shame any longer. There is something that is actually healthy that is telling us that something is wrong in our world when we experience shame. And so shame should not be ignored. Again, Counselor Ed Welch says this, that we cannot clean up shame, though, by trying to convince ourselves that shame is all in our head as if it isn't real. You're shamed for a real reason. And he gives this this very difficult illustration. He says, when a sexually violated woman feels contaminated by what has been done to her, she feels that way because she really has been contaminated. Something dirty and awful has actually been done to stain her. And trying to convince someone who has been abused that their abuse and what they're feeling about that abuse is not actually true is foolhardy and, in fact, abusive itself. That the experience of rejection, that the feeling of shame about these things is to tell them it's silly and they simply need to say, eh, it just doesn't matter. That's a ridiculous statement. Shame speaks. No, it screams that there is something wrong with us, that we are not worthy, in fact, that we are worthless, that we deserve rejection, and so we should hide. And so we need something that is more powerful and more deep, something that screams louder than the voices of our shame inside of us. To the end, shame, it takes something immensely powerful. And so here we connect the dots. Enter the shame of the cross of Jesus Christ. And this is the third area where I want to talk about this morning. It is the voice from the cross. The voice of the cross. I ask this question. We see in the text, in the synoptic gospels, that the emphasis is on the disgrace and the shame that Jesus experienced. But why the emphasis on the shame that Jesus endured? Why is that the emphasis? I mean, if Jesus was there only to pay the penalty of my sin, to take my punishment, then a mundane execution would do, right? No one has to slander him and spit on him and and strip him of his clothes. They can simply lop off his head and that would be good enough. Why the emphasis on nakedness and exposure and on mocking and rejection? Why is there so much emphasis on shame? And here we have to get into something we would call a theological implication of the cross that the New Testament writers pull out. Theologically, what we see on the cross is they talk about the, the cross in Paul's writings and others' writings that Jesus was exposed and rejected because there was something wrong with him. It's called sin. That in the, what we see in the theology of the New Testament is that your sin and my sin and the sin of the worst human beings in the world, the sin of those who've abused you and done terrible things to you, that their sin and your sin has been put upon Jesus and that he suffered to get rid of that sin, not just to take the wrath, but to take it outside the city and to remove it from us. 
2 Corinthians 5.21 is the gospel in a nutshell. And it's a verse that we say here often. And it goes like this. It says this. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Do you hear the grammar there? It's a being word. It's not that Jesus simply took the activities of your sin. He says he became sin. That his identity in the moment on the cross is all the sin of all the world is, he can essentially say, Jesus' sin. Jesus took it on himself, all your sin, all the stain of it, and he took it outside the city, and not only did he pay for it, but he did it to wash it away. But I want to go one step further. Because what we have, an understanding of 2 Corinthians 5.21 is saying, and what it is teaching is this, that Jesus was exposed and rejected because there was something wrong with him, and it was our sin. But we can extend it to say this, Jesus was exposed and rejected because there was something shameful placed upon him. You. You cannot extract, and this is the truth of what shame says to us, as you cannot extract your sin and the guilt of it and the way it shapes and remakes you in the identity of shame. You cannot extract that from yourself. And therefore, when it says that Jesus goes to the cross, he didn't simply take your sinful actions. He took the sinful parts of who you are. The shameful parts of who you are. The shame that had been done to you. And understand this. When he takes you upon himself, all that is wrong with you, both in what you have done and what others have done to you, he has taken that on himself. Let me give you some examples of this to try to bring this out. In Galatians 2, verses 20, it says this. I have been crucified with Christ. Does it say, my sins have been crucified with Christ? Does it say, just the bad things that I've done have been crucified with Christ? No, it's saying, all that I am, I have been crucified with Christ. Both the wrong things I have done, the wrong things people have done to me, and how that has shaped me and made me and formed me in my identity. My person died with Christ Jesus. All those former identities. It says the same thing in Colossians 3, 3, for you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ Jesus. And so what we're saying is this, is that the voices of shame, when they come to you and say that you're not worthy of anyone's commitments, perhaps it is the voice of some former boyfriend who says to you, who rejected you, and you have received this as shame, saying, I am not worthy of commitments. I am unworthy. Jesus takes that and says, the shame of your unworthiness is gone. I have taken it to the cross. I have taken it outside the city. It is borne by you no more. So the voice of shame that says that you have failed as a parent. And because you, are a fail, because you have failed as a parent, you are now a failure. You suck as a parent, and you'll never be able to do anything but suck as a parent. That's the voice of shame. And Jesus says, I have taken your parental suckiness, and I have taken it out of sight of Jerusalem, and I have died for it. I have put that identity to death. But Jesus doesn't simply limit our shame. He actually gives you something as well. We're looking at the same verses, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he knew him, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become a being word again, an identity word, become the righteousness of God. He took our sin, but more than that, our sinfulness, our shame, but he has given us then his righteousness. 
Jesus is stripped of all of his righteousness. He is stripped of all things that gave him dignity and glory, and he took your shame. But then all that was dignified and beautiful and lovely about him and all of his righteousness, he then took that and he put that on not just your record, but that is now your identity, which means the voice of the cross is this, where it once said where the voice of the world and the voice of your identity said you are unacceptable, the cross now says you are accepted. And Paul actually talks about this reversal. In Romans chapter 9, verses 25, he's quoting from the book of Old Testament book of Hosea when it says this, Those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. Again, identity words. We go to our Galatians and Colossians text as well. What's it say? Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. But it's not just that you're dead. That's a bad place to be. You need something more. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Colossians 3.3, 3, for you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 and these other two passages tell us that he has covered us with his righteousness. That, he, that, that is good. That we are, we are covered up. We are not exposed. We are not open to mockery before God or others. We're not going to be rejected. But understand also this. He doesn't just simply cover us. He gives us glory. He gives us a new identity. And what's that identity? Himself. That he took you in all the shameful identities that you have borne, and he has given you himself and all the glorious identity of who he is, which is what? Son of God. Perfect in righteousness. Powerful and good and compassionate and tender He is beautiful beyond description. And that is now your identity because of the cross. The cross completely reverses the voice of shame. Shame says this. We'll say it again. There is something wrong with you. You are worthless. You deserve rejection. And so you should hide. The cross now comes to us and speaks over that voice and says this. There is something glorious about you. You are beloved and of infinite value. You're accepted and approved, and so you should come out of hiding and rejoice. And indeed, that's the application, to come out of hiding. What was Adam and Eve's response when they knew about their shame? They hid. Adam and Eve hid. We We hide because of our uncleanliness. We seek to cover over our shame. We don't want to be discovered, and so we put our fig leaves over ourselves. Our response to shame is to hide. John Paul Sartre, the great philosopher, said this. His definition of hell was to be looked at, to be known. We are terrified at being exposed because being exposed brings rejection And rightly so, we are terrified of being known because in being known, it is a threat, a threat to being loved, and so we hide. Think about even the descriptions of the various people in the Bible that hid. David hides his sin. He tries to cover over his sin with even more sin. He sins with Bathsheba, and what does he do to hide over his shame after he impregnated her? He has her husband murdered. The Samaritan woman, her life is a wreck. She's had five husbands, and what is she doing when Jesus stumbles across her? 
She is hiding. She is out getting water from the well in the middle of the day when no one went to the well. Why? Because she doesn't want anybody around her to see her in her shame. We hide in our homes or away from our homes if home is the place of shame. We hide in our rooms, in our offices. We hide in housework and yard work and garage puttering. We hide behind computers and phones and newspapers and magazines. We hide behind earphones and Netflix and ESPN. We hide behind fashion facades, education facades, career facades, social media facades, pulpit facades. We hide in busyness and procrastination. We hide in outright lies our diversionary conversation. We hide behind sullenness and humor, anything that would keep people from seeing us for who we really are. As a way of covering over your inadequacies, as a way of silencing the voice of shame, so many of you have gotten really, really busy with your homeschooling and your public school activities and your sports activities and your church activities. And for many of you, your fig leaf is your grand religious life. As a way of covering your shame, you have put on the clothes of religious activities and religious right behavior. But guess what? None of it will work. You know, there's a scene in the Shakespeare play Macbeth. If you remember, Macbeth and her husband conspired to kill the king of Scotland. Having done this terrible deed, she's actually racked with shame and guilt and her servants one evening find her walking around the halls of her house rubbing her hands feverishly and what is she saying in her sleep out damn spot out that the guilt of what she had done in conspiring in the murder of the king has stained her permanently with blood is on her hands. And guess what? All of your religious activity, all of your frenzy trying to clean out the stains of sin in your life, it won't work. It doesn't work. All of your hiding to cover over yourself, it will never hide you enough. And yet, what we see, we get actually the place of covering fully and perfectly from the cross. We don't see it in this account in Matthew. We see it in John's account. That the last words that Jesus says on the cross is this. Three words, what are they? It is finished. In the Greek, it's actually one word. Tetelestai. It is finished. On the cross... Jesus takes everything that is awful about you, all the ways in which you don't measure up, your weaknesses, your inabilities, your sins, your sinfulness, the names and identities of shame that you have been given to you by others and by yourself. He takes them all. He carries them outside the city. Psalm 103 says this. It says that he removes all things from us as far as the east is from the west. And on the cross, Jesus has everything good and dignified and righteous and holy and beautiful stripped from him so that it might cover you. And so here's the realities. When God looks at you, he sees the beauty of Jesus. Jesus says, you can stop trying to finish the work. It is, and this is the difference between religion and Christianity. Religion, you know, Buddha said this. Buddha's last dying words were this, strive without ceasing. That is so radically different than the words of Jesus. Jesus' last words are, don't you dare strive. I finished it. I covered you. 
I washed you. I cleansed you. I have done the work. Religion says, finish the work. You got to do it. You got to finish the work. You got to get yourself clean. The gospel says, receive the finished work. Religion says, if you finish the work, someday God might accept you and bring you into his love and blessing. The gospel says, no, no, no. You simply receive the finished work of Jesus and you hear the voice of God that says, you are loved, you are accepted, you are blessed, you are mine, and you are my child. That's the difference between religion and Christianity. And so let me ask you this. Are you hiding today? The cross invites you to come out of hiding. And coming out of hiding is really painful. It involves repentance, which is where you acknowledge the parts of you that are actually shameful. You name them. Some of you need to go to counseling in order to have have somebody help you walk through and name your shame. You declare it for what it is. You declare what has been done to you. You declare the names that has been put upon you, and you say, that's what has been done. But Jesus took that outside the city. And faith and trust is then clinging to the names that he gives to you. Beloved, child of God, completed work, beautiful in my sight. That's the good news of the cross. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that you would um, be really tender with some specific people in this room this morning. I pray for those that have experienced trauma and abuse that your spirit would protect them right now from the evil one. Lord, instead, may your spirit invade this place and invade hearts and minds that would not allow the shame and the remembrance of those things that I may have connected to in some way, shape, or form from some illustration. But instead, your spirit would rush in and be kind and tender to speak your words and your declarations over them. Would they not give room for the shameful voice of the evil one or the shameful voice of themselves that they have practice speaking to themselves for years and instead they would give them over to the voice of the spirit of God who cries out within us Abba Father who declares to us that we are children who declares to us that we have an inheritance who declares to us that we are beloved so spirit do that now and then help us to raise up our voices in rejoicing and worship to you we pray in Jesus name amen